I think we've seen with social media, especially Facebook, people are actually pretty darn willing to give up a lot of their privacy in data in return for social connectivity. That's the hook, is the social connectivity. This is Dale Sanders, an internationally recognized data and technology strategist. He's one of the experts we'll hear from in this episode. He's also on social media, and I'm willing to bet you are too. The odds are pretty good. Twitter has about 330 million monthly active users, over 600 million people are on Instagram, and Facebook has nearly 3 billion monthly active users. That's almost half the world's population. And an enormous amount of data is generated and shared on these platforms. 500,000 comments and 300 million photos are posted to Facebook every day, and 456,000 tweets are sent every single minute. But it's not just social media that generates data. We also have smart fridges, doorbells, fitness trackers, and voice-activated assistants like Alexa. And these smart devices are collecting and sharing data about our preferences, location, and so much more. All that data can be used to enhance the convenience and quality of our lives. But what are the real implications about sharing all this information? Where is the line between convenience and privacy? And from a health perspective, how can data and technology be used to better predict, prevent, and treat disease, and deliver the benefits of personalized health? We depend on policymakers around the world to make these value judgments. And while the devices may change and evolve in the years ahead, we can be certain that the collection of data is here to stay. This is Future Proofing Healthcare, a podcast that explores how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. While data has the potential to improve healthcare, there are plenty of issues facing policymakers. Exploring all facets of the data challenge in healthcare could be a podcast series of its own. But in this episode, we'll focus on four big questions. What barriers prevent data from being shared within health systems? How much and what types of data do we need? Why are people sometimes reluctant to share their health information, and how do we assure them it's valuable and safe to do so? And last, how can policymakers ensure that data are collected, stored, and used cost-effectively, securely, and ethically? To help answer these questions, you'll hear more from Dale Sanders and meet another expert, Joanne Hackett, the head of genomic and precision medicine at IQVIA. And we'll explore some examples from around the world where the use of data is improving health outcomes. The first challenge facing health systems is that data are not always easily shared between researchers, companies, and government agencies. Too much data is held in silos with highly limited access. That reduces its value. Dame Tessa Jowell, the former British Culture Secretary, gave this speech to Parliament in support of the Eliminate Cancer Initiative, just four months before she died from a rare brain cancer in 2018. The Eliminate Cancer Initiative, now known as Collaborate Against Cancer, aims to improve data sharing across countries so patients get access to the best treatments and advice. This is now quite a new approach. 
Already, collaborative discussions are underway in England. Bureaucratic hurdles, lack of clear guidelines or political will, and legal concerns are amongst the many barriers that make it difficult for health systems to share data. Take cancer care, for example. Lower middle income and low income countries often lack the expertise and financial resources to set up and maintain cancer registries, which prevents them from knowing where to target clinical and research assistance. In other cases, academics and pharmaceutical companies are not properly incentivized to share data from their research or clinical trials. There is also no global framework for sharing data between countries. But initiatives like Collaborate Against Cancer, governmental bodies like the European Commission, and private companies like Holmusk, a data science company that's building the world's largest real-world evidence platform for mental health, are working hard to break down data silos. And as we'll discuss later in this episode, there are already some models for how health systems can improve data collection, use, and governance. This brings us to the second data challenge facing policymakers, determining how much and what kind of data is necessary to achieve personalized health. Here's Dale Sanders again, the Chief Strategy Officer for Intelligent Medical Objects and the former Chief Technology Officer for Health Catalyst. We collect 100 megabytes of data per patient per year in U.S. healthcare. That's like a handful of songs. Tesla collects eight terabytes of data in a single day on a single car. And it's all about performance and health of that automobile. If we are essentially analog human beings and we're trying to understand the human at the center of this analog experience, we have to digitize that human to a better degree. All of us should have a digital twin in the healthcare system. A digital twin is exactly what it sounds like. In a white paper I wrote in 2020 for Future Proofing Healthcare, I explained that a digital twin is a virtual representation of ourselves. It includes information about our vital signs and history of illness, as well as our non-medical data, like where we live, what we eat, and the choices we make, all of which have an impact on our well-being. Of course, some people are worried that the more data that are collected about them, the more identifiable they become. And concerns about data privacy is the third data challenge. But Joanne Hackett, the head of genomic and precision medicine at IQVIA, adds that not all data sources are treated alike. Some of this data needs to be linked together in order to be able to get a more comprehensive picture of the individual if you're trying to treat a particular illness, for example. And some of it is very important to not at all be associated with the individual in particular, but to be grouped. Take air quality, for example. According to the World Health Organization, air pollution accounts for over 4 million deaths worldwide and can lead to respiratory infection, heart disease, and lung cancer. Children, the elderly, and the poor are most vulnerable. So if you are a policymaker trying to reduce pollution-related illness, what would be more helpful to you? An enormous spreadsheet of every person's address, age, history of disease, and other biomarkers? Or a heat map of your country that shows which cities and communities have the worst air quality levels and highest rates of illness? Sometimes, aggregated population-level data are more helpful than individualized information because aggregated data can identify the worst affected areas and deliver large-scale solutions that help everyone. 
blanket statements of everything has to be collected, everything has to be identified, everything has to be put together. That scares a lot of people because it doesn't have to be. There's a lot of things that can be individualized without actually disclosing every single facet of one's health or any sort of personal choices that they make. But even if not all data are individualized, data breaches are still a real risk. Digitized health data are increasingly vulnerable to security failures and cyber attacks. Dale Sanders says these breaches can chip away at public trust in data collection. Every time a technical misstep leads to the divulgence of data, it scares me because those are mistakes that we can easily take care of. But even if our fears about data privacy aren't irrational, Dale argues they are disproportionate. And they could even lead us to implement security policies that actually make data less useful to health systems. The truth is the perceived risk of privacy violations is a lot higher than the real risk. And that's almost heresy to say, but that's, that's just the truth. The most secure private data in the world is also the least useful. Its societal value diminishes every time you put a new lock on that data. I think we can put good ethical boundaries around the data and, and be very transparent about how it's being used and then communicate the value of that back to patients. Rather than making data nearly impossible to access, Dale says we can protect data from abuse through smart policies and better governance. And when systems fail and data are misused, there must be consequences. Put appropriate punishment on the healthcare systems and the healthcare data stewards who don't put adequate administrative and technical safeguards around the data. Because every time there's a compromise due to some error that diminishes the public's faith in the proper use of that data, makes them more reluctant to donate blood or donate data the next time. We need to have harsh penalties for technical and administrative missteps that violate patient privacy. But we also need to make sure that we communicate the difference between perceived and real risk to patients. Before working in healthcare, Dale worked for the US military managing and analyzing complex data ecosystems. That experience shaped his thinking. I was working on a nuclear decision support tool for the National Command Authorities of the US. So I was studying computer-aided decision-making in time-critical, life-critical situations. And doing my literature search, I thought, Surely, healthcare, they are way ahead of the stodgy old fashioned Pentagon in the US with their adoption of computer aided decision support. And I couldn't find anything. Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City, it had published a number of papers, but it was very rudimentary. And I came back from that trip and said, you know, this whole world of nuclear warfare is kind of creeping me out anyway. And that was my entry into healthcare. Both military and health systems use technology and humans to gather information and interpret results, and therefore have to guard against software failures, false positives and negatives, and cognitive biases in decision-making. Most important, the primacy of data is similar in both worlds. Military commanders insist on better data about the battlefield. They insist, I want to know as much detail about this battle space as I possibly can, including the social determinants and the socioeconomic environment surrounding the battle space, because my military decisions 
are affected by socioeconomic factors. I don't see any kind of passion like that from healthcare leadership around the digitization of the patient for situational assessment and precision understanding of the digital twin. They're just not there yet. The COVID-19 pandemic has thrown many of these challenges into sharp relief, and in some ways, is shifting the way we think about data sharing. Here's Joanne again. I think COVID has allowed people to be a little bit more curious about their health, be a little bit more empowered to be part of their, their whole healthcare. But more importantly, it's getting people to think about the healthcare data now when there's a, a lot of discussion about vaccine passports and things like that. The question is, what information are you willing to share? When the UK government announced it was considering implementing vaccine passports, some privacy groups and several members of parliament came out strongly against the proposal. And on June 12, 2021, a parliamentary committee released a report concluding the passports would be discriminatory and risk breaches of data privacy. But recent polls show that the majority of UK citizens actually see value in giving up a little of their privacy by sharing their immunization status, because it will allow them to return to public spaces safely. Most respondents also want to use vaccine passports as a requirement for certain jobs and believe the passports would be valuable even after the virus is no longer a public threat. So maybe it's not that people don't appreciate the possible issues surrounding vaccine passports, it's that they believe the benefit to public health outweighs the costs. There have been similar disagreements and concerns about data sharing for contact tracing. Early on in the pandemic, According to a survey from a global consultancy called Oliver Weinman, most respondents in the US, UK, Germany, Spain, and Australia say they were reluctant to share information about a positive test with government officials or a commercial app. They also said they wouldn't feel comfortable sharing their location data to help health systems monitor compliance with social distancing rules. In some cases, the public's fear about sharing health data has been validated by privacy breaches. One such breach occurred earlier this year in the United States. In Pennsylvania, the personal information of more than 70,000 people was exposed by the company that was hired to conduct contact tracing in the state. The company gathering the data didn't encrypt the information they collected from people during contact tracing efforts. Phone numbers, addresses, and detailed notes about people's health and family life were entered into spreadsheets that anyone with a link could access. No login or passwords were needed. And around the world, policymakers are taking these privacy issues seriously and strengthening their data governance policies. Singapore, for example, passed legislation explaining that data collected via a contact tracing app called Trace Together could also be used by police in serious criminal investigations. The law has created much-needed transparency, and the Prime Minister's support for the app has also helped build public trust. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought us face-to-face -face with data collection and privacy challenges. Data collection can identify disease hotspots, help people get timely access to treatment, and save lives. But in order to be truly useful, the public has to believe there is a fair value exchange for their health data. Or as Joanne says, empower the individual, empower the patient. People want to know if I'm going to collect data where is it going? Is it useful? Did someone find it valuable? And more importantly, is it going to help me somehow? 
and the terms for how data should be collected and used must be clear and enforceable. This brings us to our fourth data challenge, how policymakers can design systems that collect and use data cost-effectively, efficiently, and ethically. Let's consider how this challenge applies specifically to genomics. Genomics has become a critical aspect of personalized health since the completion of the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project was one of the biggest data collection projects of the 20th century. Researchers from around the world spent 13 years putting together the entire DNA sequence of the human genome, and their findings gave us invaluable insight into new ways to treat, prevent, and cure disease. It also led to enormous leaps in technology and inspired other sequencing initiatives, like the UK's groundbreaking 100,000 Genomes Project, announced at the 2012 London Olympics. UK Prime Minister David Cameron set out a groundbreaking commitment that we would sequence uh, the entire genome of 100,000 NHS uh, patients in cancer and rare diseases. And we determined... The project was run by Genomics England, who met their sequencing target of 100,000 patients in 2018, just six years after the initiative began. Of course, there is no manual for how the UK and health systems around the world should use all of this genomic data not only to treat rare diseases, but to deliver personalized healthcare. Let's catch up with Joanne Hackett again. People like her are a real-time reference guide, finding solutions to data challenges as they go along. As we learned earlier in this episode, Joanne is the head of genomic and precision medicine at IQVIA. She also worked with Genomics England. I was their chief commercial officer. My role was to take the 100,000 Genomes Project and understand how that data can be collected, de-identified, shared, how the insights can then be fed back into patients, but more importantly, how other parts of the world can learn and establish this large genomics program. Tell us how you got into genomics and personalized health. My personal life experience has shaped tremendously my interest in both genomics and precision medicine. I was that strange kid who loved to play around outside in ponds and look for frog eggs and various things like that. The other thing was the fact that I had celiac disease, which was undiagnosed. It was my own celiac disease and the fascination with biology that really got me excited about healthcare as a whole. So at Genomics England, your role was to figure out how to use all the data from the 100,000 Genomes Project and help other health systems set up similar programs. How does that compare to what you're now doing at IQVIA? My main role is to try to understand the solutions that governments and providers need to implement in order to have a better strategy when it comes to genomics and precision medicine. Are there different ways to streamline genomic testing? And then more fundamentally, what do we do with the data? How do we treat that safely and securely, but at the same time, share that information? Let's imagine I'm a policymaker and I'm interested in setting up a genomics program. I call you to help me and my first concern is it's going to be prohibitively expensive. Genomics has decreased in cost significantly, so the machinery is probably not going to be an issue. There are commercial suppliers who make this and you're probably doing more genomic testing than what you actually realize. Whole genome sequencing is the most expensive type of genomic sequencing. People will have to pay to access it. 
because someone has to pay to collect it and clean it up and to put it in a safe storage space. That is actually a factor for many countries to not do whole genome sequencing. So even if the technology that enables personalized health has become cheaper, there are still costs associated with storing and using data. This is another data challenge facing policymakers, figuring out who should pay for data use and storage and what price to charge that is fair and ethical. There's very few things, unfortunately, in this world that doesn't have a cost implication. We forget about that when we use the internet so widely today. Joanne brings up a good point. The internet has made so many resources available to us for free, like the news, and it's shifted our expectations for what a fair value exchange is. But some countries are considering new ways to reestablish commercial models. For example, Australia requires Facebook and Google to pay a license fee to news outlets for the right to share articles on their platforms. Could genomics programs adopt a similar model and charge fees to support data storage and collection infrastructure? I can see commercial models changing like that. The compute and storage piece of it has to be compensated in some way, shape, or form. So let's go back to our imaginary policy discussion. You've convinced me that my health system can afford to set up a genomics program, but how do I know the data is going to be relevant or helpful? How is it going to be shared amongst all the decision makers who will need access to it? It's going to be different in every country, simply based on the fact that there's different appetite for risk. Different parts of the world accept consent in a slightly different way. There's just unfortunately not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to genomics. As a last point, I asked both Joanne and Dale which health systems they believe has set a good example for tackling the data challenge of personalized health. The Nordic countries have a publicly funded healthcare system, a patient identifiable uh, number that you're born with and you have your entire life, and a population that's small enough to be able to communicate effectively. The patient population is also big enough that there is diversity to be able to understand the richness of the data. Longitudinal follow-up is hugely important, and the Nordics do that very well. I think when decisions can be made in a few localities in a smaller country, it can be done much more effectively and efficiently. There are absolutely more natural economic incentives in nationally sponsored health systems to provide lower cost care at the highest quality possible. Countries that are more nationally oriented There is a natural economic incentive to have a healthier, lower-cost population and healthcare delivery system. The Finnish government, for example, recognizes that data and data sharing are crucial to improving healthcare delivery, research, and facilitating health system reform. Finland passed a Secondary Use of Health and Social Data Act in 2019 to make it easier to collect data from different sources while strengthening privacy and security. With personalized health, we have the potential to tap into data to improve health outcomes for individuals and overall health system efficiencies. We'll revisit this topic in future episodes of this podcast. In the next episode, we'll talk about how to inspire change in the mindset of clinicians. I'll leave you with two parting thoughts from Dale Sanders and Joanne Hackett on this subject. Talent acquisition, talent retention, talent development is obviously a massive area that does need to be addressed. In many developed parts of the world, there's been bioinformatics programs for years. This doesn't exist in certain parts of the world. 
there are a lot of courses now and opportunities for educational knowledge transfer. And a lot of this can be taught on site. So I think the good thing is there's a lot of opportunities to change things because fundamentally all we're really doing is looking at data. I fundamentally believe that healthcare leaders of the future, including clinicians, absolutely need to have a foundation in classical philosophy as a way of training the mind to think and solve problems. And I think that healthcare needs to hire more electrical engineers because they think in standards, they think in scalability, and they're natural thinkers around digitization. We need more scientists and engineers in positions of leadership. This is the Future Proofing Healthcare Podcast, where we are exploring how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. Many thanks to my guests Dale Sanders and Joanne Hackett for their time and insights. You can find more information about Future Proofing Healthcare at futureproofinghealthcare.com, including a full list of sources used in developing this episode. To listen, follow, and review our episodes, head to your favorite podcast player. This show is written, researched, and produced by Taliosa, Mission Base Media, and Roche. Additional research and writing was done by Michaela Arneson. Sound design was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening.